Uh, well, good morning. Good to see you again. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I like that, whoever that was. Uh, I need it. Um, okay, I'm, I am a man, and I'm humbled, and God has placed in my life a wife that helps me. Um, I, and I knew better. Uh, Diane Winningham is the K through one. Pam, do I have that right? Second. See, look, at, look at, I, uh, I need help, lots of help, okay? Uh, uh, principal. And I knew that. I knew that. I was like, she goes, she told me, I said, yeah, I know. She goes, well, you said this. Like, uh, okay. Um, so about 80% of what I say up here might be wrong. So kind of, you know, uh, make sure you check the internet, right? <laughs> uh, good. Love you guys. Uh, I also want to tell you, um, that song, the second song, uh, that song is an original. Uh, Josh wrote that. Um, and I love that. And because what it is, it's really a, a song of North Shore, you know, him and I, well, I don't you know, months and months ago, we're just sitting down, and, you know, God, over the course of my ministry this last uh, maybe three to four years, has really taken me to John 17, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the fact that unity of his body was on mind, on his mind in that moment, uh, I take that very seriously, and I do think it's a, um, something that he wants the church overall to remember especially in a time like this. And so as we were talking, the Lord put on his heart um, this song, you wrote it. So anyway, I just uh, love that. So when you sing that song, you're not going to turn the radio on and hear that. Uh, that is a song of North Shore. That is us. It's our heart's cry from John 17, make us one, as you and the Father are one, so that the world will know, right? We take that seriously. Anyway, uh, that's not the sermon, I'm sorry. Um, uh, uh, welcome online. We love you guys out there. I think we forgot to welcome you too. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, is uh, well, we had some voices I really wanted you to hear. Right? We hit graduations and stuff, and they've did an amazing job. And so I'm excited to be back. Uh, we are in our series that we titled "Rebuilding After Brokenness." Do I need to tell you why we're doing this series? <laughs> uh, I mean, 2020 has dealt us a lot of brokenness, right? Um, and so, and the church is not immune to elements of brokenness as we look around. And so, as I was praying over this, and I see you there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers will get a Bible to you, okay? Uh, but we're, we're not immune to this brokenness. So as I was just praying over this uh, and just living out 2020 here at North Shore um, and everyone just seeing uh, the brokenness around, uh, God reminded me, Scott, this isn't new. It reminded me of Nehemiah and the Ezra-Nehemiah story that there was brokenness. Um, and they were led by God to rebuild after this brokenness. And Nehemiah specifically the wall around Jerusalem, you know, which would rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so we're going to look to Nehemiah and just a little background, but if you really want a great background of this book, uh, listen to last week's message. Mark did an amazing job on really setting this in history. Uh, but Nehemiah is a Jewish man in captivity in Persia. God calls him to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Jerusalem is broke, and he is called. And there is a lot that we can learn as we look around at the Church of Jesus Christ in America, and as we see elements of brokenness. And there's some things we can learn, and that's what we hope to do. So you turn to Nehemiah. 
Let me pray. Father God, we love you as we enter your word. My prayer is that you'd speak to each of us right where we're at. And also speak to us collectively, Father. Allow us to take the things of God seriously. And may you call us into action. May we be rebuilders in what seems to be a brokenness. Teach us now. Speak through me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you would expect, Nehemiah opens up with brokenness. In chapter 1, we see Nehemiah's brother coming back from Jerusalem to Persia to give him a report in verse 3, chapter 1. And he tells him this, that Jerusalem is broke. The holy city, the city of God, where God's presence is, the city that represents the centerpiece for all worship for God's people is in ruins. Its gates destroyed by fire. And the people are in trouble and they're in shame, it says. And that crushes Nehemiah. He is crushed in verse four. It says he is so crushed by what he hears that he weeps for days. He weeps for days. And then we see God start his rebuilding project. What he begins with is a prayer of repentance by Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes before God and repents, saying, I am sorry. Search me, God. Correct me if there's anything in me. Restore me. Start with rebuilding me first. Why did he pray this prayer? Because he cared deeply about the things of God and the work of God. And he said, God, start with me. Start rebuilding in me, and then God, would you use me to rebuild your work? See, we have to understand this. Rebuilding the church of Jesus Christ, if there's any brokenness, we'll start with us, with you. It's going to start with you caring about the work of God enough, with me caring enough about the work of God and what he's doing, and then allow him to start rebuilding in me and then using me to rebuild. So I want to ask you two questions. How much does the work of God matter to you? How much does the work of God matter to you when you look around? Secondly, are you willing to allow God to use you to rebuild his work? To start in you and then use your hands, your feet to rebuild his work. We're in a season that we need to ask ourselves these questions, Christian. So as Nehemiah prays for repentance, the next step we see, if you turn to chapter 2 in Nehemiah, 
Turn to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And we're going to see him pray for guidance. Let me read it. Nehemiah 2. I'll start in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So what's going on here is the king, the king of Persia, sees Nehemiah and says, this, you're not sick. This is a sadness of the heart. And he would know because Nehemiah is a cupbearer. And what the cupbearer does for the king, it is a position of great power, great influence. Because he is with the king at all times. And then when the king gets food or drink, he will take it and taste it first. And they watch him. If he dies, the king will not eat it because someone's trying to assassinate him and poison him. Great job, right? Great job. Um, and so they are together all the time. And it grows a deep, close relationship. This cupbearer would take a bullet for this king. So this king recognizes and sees something's going on here. And a side note, it is actually illegal to be sad before the king. So this is a big moment. You see some fear in this. He says, this is obviously something deep, a sadness of the heart. And I love what Nehemiah does here. Oh, king, live forever. You know what he's saying? Hey, no disrespect right now, but I'm going to tell you something. My hope is not in this kingdom. It is in the kingdom of God. And that city of hope, that place of hope, the people of hope, they are broken and they are in ruins. And this is cutting him in the deepest of ways. He is broke. Man, I can relate to this. I can relate to this. I love the local church. It was a local church. People from the local church that came to me, my wife, my young family, and they came and they befriended us. They loved us unconditionally. All the goofy things we were doing, no judgment. They loved us. They walked with us. They drew us in to where I could meet Jesus Christ and my life would change forever, for eternity. That's what the church did for me. The church invited me in and said, make a career out of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. And for 25 years, I've got to, every day, live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach this gospel. And I've watched hundreds of lives changed forever by the power and the name of Jesus Christ. I love the local church. And it breaks me deeply. 
I have cried more tears watching what's taken place over this past year uh, in the church, even in this church. It crushes me on a daily basis. But looking at Nehemiah, learning from Nehemiah, he did not get stuck in his despair. Look what happened next, verse 4 there. Verse 4, so he just, bam, puts it out there for the king. My hope is in that. My hope is in God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this earth, not Persia. And the king says this, what are you requesting? I don't think he expected that, just so you know. But we see something. Nehemiah quickly goes to prayer. King says, verse 4, so what are you requesting? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He goes to God in that moment, big moment. What do I do? He prays. I tell you, I, I've done that a thousand, if not a million times. Man, the heat, the pressure, something's going on. What do I do? The only thing I know, need, I know to do, excuse me, is to pray. Seek the Lord out. Man, there's some times that people are just giving it to me or something's breaking my heart, and I'm looking at him, but I'm praying. God, show me. Because Nehemiah says, God, I need you. Speak to me. I don't know what to do. Give me guidance. Give me wisdom. Because Nehemiah knows this is God's story and not his. This is God's story, not Nehemiah's. God is using Nehemiah, and Nehemiah knows it. He says, God, show me. And it's awesome. God answers him. Verses 5 through 8, man, he gives him an answer of boldness. He says, okay, king, <laughs> send me back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And give me letters. One letter basically is a passport of safety to go through enemy territory. We'll learn all about that next week. And give me a letter where I could go uh, to your forest and get material to rebuild this wall uh, and the supports of the temple and even my own house. And the king says, yes. <laughs> Why? Verse 8. Because God's hand was upon him. He prays for guidance. See, now that Nehemiah... His heart, his focus is set. He is ready. Now we can start the rebuilding project. Nehemiah is ready to be part of this. So let's go to verse 11, chapter 2. And we're going to start with project assessment. And any project begins with an inspection, right? Here's Nehemiah's inspection, verse 11 through verse 15. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down 
and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. Did we ever get that picture of the uh, wall by any chance? Is that there? I forgot to ask you this morning. Oh, good. There it is. Just so you know what I read. Um, that, I didn't know what that ice cream cone looked, whatever you want to call that darker wall. That's Nehemiah's wall, okay? The other wall is the current wall around Jerusalem, what they call the old city. So uh, the little square right in the middle between the B and C, that's the temple, the temple mount, just so you get an idea. And the valley gate is lower onto the left here. So that's where Nehemiah started his inspection, went down around, uh, turned around and came back. So there's just a picture for you. So what happened here? Okay, his inspection. What did Nehemiah discover? Nehemiah discovered uh, that... Well, he knew this before that the city was dangerous. So he went on a night tour. Why did he do that? Because he had heard that there was enemies living in Jerusalem. It was dangerous. So he went out at night. And then he went to the gates. Because the gates are the way a city is protected. And they are also, um, they show you what the purposes of the city. What's coming in and out. It's where the names of the gates come from. And so he starts this, and he, he's going to see, okay, how is the city functioning? How's it going? To check these gates out. He doesn't get very far, right? Because what he discovers, that is, it is in ruins. When he says, my, my horse can't even cross through, the gates were intended for that reason, to get animals and things through. He says, I can't even get my animal through. In fact, he says, I have to turn around and go back. I couldn't even finish the full inspection. This city, Jerusalem, was in ruins. It could not fulfill the purpose that God had for it. The city of God, the centerpiece of worship for God followers. He had to turn around and go back. So for us, if we took a tour, what would we discover? What is our discovery? You know, obviously, given this message, I just sat, prayed, and thought. What is the state of things around us, our community, our churches? Just the other day, about a week ago, you've got to know something. I grew up in eastern Washington, up in the mountains, okay? Just so you know. I'm a mountain kid. I love Seattle. My family couldn't travel. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to visit Seattle until I think I was... 18 or 19 years old. But as a kid, I loved it. I loved the Seahawks. I mean, I remember in third grade, I'd draw pictures of Seattle. I just loved the city. It was so beautiful in the pictures. The Emerald City, right? And so when I moved here, I just loved that I get to live close to Seattle and everything Seattle is. It's beautiful. Well, two weeks ago, I drove through Seattle for the first time. Have you done that? I know, you're laughing. I mean, I hope it's like me, this uncomfortable laugh. It is ugly. It is dirty. There is graffiti like I've never seen graffiti in Seattle ever. There are windows boarded up everywhere. This emerald city has lost its shine. And this young kid was heartbroken. I watched the news. Our communities everywhere are just broke. 
it is hard to listen to what's happening all around the communities in our country. But what makes me the most sad is what I see in the churches in America. The church in America, this country has lost its confidence and trust in the church. It used to go to the church to help guide policy and how we're going to do things. We see it written all over our history. They're not asking anymore. Interesting. They predict, and we're on track for it, that in America, through this broken season, that church attendance will drop 40%. Did you hear that? 40%, nearly half in America. I read yesterday that the church closing rate in America has increased by five times this past year. Whew. I have all kinds of conversations with people. There's this new thing that you have to know. Uh, it's a term called deconstructing my faith. And you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear about it everywhere. Your kids are going to come and ask you about it. You young people, right? It's real in your culture right now. Basically what that is, it says, you know what? As I look at the church, I look at this year, uh, it is so broken. There must be something wrong with what we learned and how we've been doing it. So I'm going to deconstruct my faith and figure this out because something's wrong. The truth isn't the truth anymore because of what they look around. There's a brokenness about the church around us. A friend of mine in this area just this week, I was talking to him. He's a pastor in the area. He said, Scott, I had to pull my staff together this week, circle them up and tell them, at the rate things are going, if things don't change, in the next three to five months, I'm going to have to lay you off. Right? The relationships in the church. Uh, I mean, I could say some strong stuff. I'll just say this. What I see Christians and how they are treating each other, it's gross. It's disgusting. As I watch Facebook, uh, listen to conversations, people talking to me about stuff, grace is just gone. Anger, venom is present. Humility, I don't know where that's at anymore. And North Shore is not immune to this at all, right? It's not immune to this. Uh, so there is a, a, a brokenness. And I'll say this, there is a beauty I see. Because uh, Jesus made Peter a promise. The gates of hell will not prevail, right? And I believe that truth. And I think you guys sitting here, you guys online, are an evidence that God's power, his goodness, his protection of his church is there. But there are hints Maybe things aren't so subtle of brokenness, right? So what do we do? What do we do? I think we have to start of understanding what is the purpose of the church. Jerusalem had a purpose, right? What's the purpose of the church? Acts 2. I want to read this to you. Um, it's for the church that we are actively present in, that Jesus starts through the Holy Spirit, he gives the purpose of it. Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The church. The church is to be a gem, to be exalted. And so the purpose of the church is this. It is first and foremost to be a gathering place where people can encounter, powerfully encounter a holy God. And in that encounter, encounter one another in a spiritual pursuit of seeking Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to be a gathering place. It's to be an equipping place, a place to the teaching of God's word, to instruct us, to guide us, to be on mission with Jesus in this place and in the entire world. It's to be an equipping place to the teaching of God's word. And it's to be a ministering place, a ministering place where we, uh, with the heart of Jesus, extend compassion, generosity, love for people in the fold, believers and non-believers, where they are invited to be part of this and experience the life-transforming, changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The church is to be a gem. And I love this. When the church is a church, Matthew 5 tells us it's going to be salt and it's going to be light. So when we fulfill our purpose, we get to be salt to this world. And, and salt is a preservative. The teachings of Jesus Christ preserve people. Their spiritual lives. This world needs the teaching of Jesus Christ. And we are called the salt to teach it, to proclaim it. Salt is also something to give something great flavor. So through our church, people should witness, experience, taste and see the goodness of Jesus Christ. We're to be salt. We're to be light. And this is, the light is like a guiding aspect. We are to guide people to the one and only hope for the entire world, and that is Jesus. They should experience that hope in us, right? We should be a light. Everything we do here, all the missions we do outside of here, should be a light that leads to the path of them encountering Jesus Christ and then prayerfully make a faith decision to follow him as their Lord and Savior. Salt and light, we get to be that. Understand this. You, know, you heard this word essential thrown around a lot over the last couple of years. I, there's a word I like better than essential. Vital. The church is vital. 
Without it, there's death. With it, because of who we point to, there's life. North Shore Christian Church is vital. We are vital to this community where we're planted out. North Shore Christian Academy is vital. Because we bring a message through the power of Jesus can take you from death to life. It matters. So, woo, take a breath. I know. Um, yeah, right? Amen. Come on. Um, I, I almost apologize. Maybe I need to preach more so I'd settle down a little bit. Okay? Um, uh, but here's the deal. Um, how do we do this? That's, that's, that's overwhelming. And you're, there's a lot of brokenness out there. Luckily, we do not have to do it alone. I love what Nehemiah teaches us here. We don't have to do it alone. Let's go to verse 11. So this project, as we assess it, we understand it takes a family. It takes a family. And, and, and for Nehemiah, his family, uh, and, and you look at a couple different places, uh, you don't have to go back to verse 3, chapter 2. Uh, how does Nehemiah see his people? He sees them as family. Because he, when he is grieving before the king there in verse 3, he says this. He goes, it is the graves of my father's possessive. Graves, plural. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now. Nehemiah has one earthly father. What he's saying is, that's my family. That is my family over there. This is my family here, my spiritual family. And again, uh, verse 16, I'm, uh, he, 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 he identifies this family, and, and then he calls them together. Verse 16 he, is this. He's talking about going on that trip alone, and he identifies the people that he's ultimately going to do this work with. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priest the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. The Jews, priests, nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, everyone, right? These are the remnant of people that were there. This is my family. It is a we and an us journey. This is who is going to do the work together. And you guys know my sports background, so I love a good pregame speech. And he gives one in verse 17 and 18, verse 2. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or disgrace it. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us, I love this, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So the speech, man, it's awesome. So he starts off with this. He says, okay, it's great need. You got it. I checked it out. Um, it's bad. Hell yeah, it's bad. Uh, and he starts using these phrases, the we's, the us. The calling is this family. It's going to be us. And I love their response. Man, I mean, I could just see it. A, I think they're yelling. I think they're screaming. This is my guess. But uh, they said, let us. It is us. We're family. This is our role, our calling. Let us rise up. We're going to move. 
and we're going to build. And they strengthen themselves. I think that's their hands for the work. I think they got ready. I think they got their hearts ready. Here we go. This is going to be tough. And they run off. And we see chapter 3, this powerful, beautiful uh, description of this wall being rebuilt and who was involved in it. And what we're going to see there, it was the full family. Starts off in, in verse 1. You see the high priest. This is the big cheese, the grand poopah of all things. He's out working, right? So they're working. You see the merchants. They go out and they're rebuilding the wall. Goldsmiths and perfumers, uh, perfumers are the people that make the anointing oil. They're out there building the wall. Rulers and officials of the city there, even officials from other cities are there rebuilding the wall. You see this family, this community. 3 verse 12 is probably my favorite, just so you know. Because you have a father and his daughters. That's just beautiful. I mean, truly, the family has stepped in. And they are rebuilding the wall. It is the whole spiritual family coming together to do this. And they are a united family. Verse 1, they begin rebuilding the gates in this wall. And they consecrate it. Meaning this is God's. We're doing this for God. They are united for this work. You can only imagine how much division was in this city. How many opinions were around. The things they could argue and fight because this place is broken. But for the work of God, we're going to be unified. We're going to come together. Who knows what the conversations on the wall are. They probably argued about everything. But we're going to do the Lord's work. We're not going to. To quit. And that's maybe the most tragic verse in chapter 3 is verse 5. The nobles there from a a city uh, said they did not join the work. This is really hard. I believe church is a family. I believe at my deepest core, I think scripture backs it up. And unfortunately, it's become kind of an entertainment place for most people. Do I like what I hear when I heard sung? Do I like the programs? We would never allow our homes to live that way. Imagine your kid said, oh, the neighbor's down there. Well, they uh, have a different bedtime. So I'm going to head down the street there. Going to go there. Boy, uh, over there, their house has a view of the water. Ah, see ya. Love you, honey, but just a little bit different and better there. Kind of meets my needs a little bit more. Imagine family being lived like that. Why is church live like that? I mean, I'm using this overly, but it's gross. I think it's gross. We are family. You know, we got to get to a place that we die for the work of Jesus Christ, right? And then in the same manner that we will die for each other. Go to work. I might not like what you kind of think about this thing, but guess what? With my arm wrapped around you, I'll slug you in the gut, and we'll keep going, right? We're family. That's what took place. But here's the sad thing. Not everybody's going to go. Not everybody's going to go with you. 
but I love what they do. They keep going. That's just a blip in the map. If you read chapter uh, 3, you may not even notice that. Because guess what, baby? We're Gideon's army, and we're going. We're going. Because it is a work that is too important to stop. All right? So this is a united family. They are together. And they had urgency. Guess what? They had other jobs, other things, all kinds of different things they did. But they stepped in and they went. This was the number one priority. God's work in this land, we're going, we're going to make it work. And they went with absolute urgency. The work was too important. They didn't wait till they were trained up and they were master carpenters. They went. Trusted Nehemiah to lead them. Figure it out as they went, because the message and the work was too important for them. So, who's our family? What is our family? Right? If you look at in the New Testament, it's really clear. As followers of Jesus, we call God our Father. He calls us his sons and daughters. We call each other brothers and sisters. We are called the household of God. We are family. Followers of Jesus Christ. People called to North Shore Christian Church. We are family. We are family. And God took this family and he poured gifts on it. Romans 12. Each one of you has a gift, possibly multiple gifts, through the Holy Spirit for the purpose of this. For the common purpose, it says, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. For the common purpose of what 1 Corinthians 14, 12 tells us, to build up the church, to lift it up so it could be a gem for Jesus Christ, be a salt and light. Each one of us called right here, right now, to do the work of God. I'm going to invite the worship team out here as we begin to think about what does God have us do? There is brokenness. We see it. Right? Jesus calls us. Jesus calls us to step in, to rebuild, to understand what's happening and be part of the family. The world gravely needs us. Even if they don't understand what we possess, the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, they need us. Your church needs you. Your family right here needs you. And we await you crying out like Nehemiah. You know, as I was thinking about how do we respond to these things, I'm reminded of Esther in the Bible. Okay, some of you know Esther, some may not. Esther was a Jewish woman who rose up to power in the same era and as Nehemiah around all this captivity heartbreak that we're reading about. Esther rose up 
And her relative said this to her. And she was looking around, and what do I do? He said, Esther, for such a time as this, you were called. Guess what, North Shore Christian Church? You were called in 2020 amidst COVID-19, against race wars, against political tension. For such a time as this, you were called, right? So I take you back to the questions I asked you early. How much does the work of God matter to you? It starts with asking that. How much does the work of God matter? Does it break your heart? Have you wept for days for the brokenness that you see around you? And then would you allow God to use you, to rebuild you first, and then use you to rebuild his work. God is powerful. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But this is his church. We have to rise up. The time is now. We have to rebuild after this brokenness for the glory of God, for the message of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now. And I want you to pray. First of all, search your heart. How much do the things of God matter to you? How much? And will you allow him? Be in a, a, a space of prayer. And we're going to lift up and we're going to praise and be reminded of the power that's at work, at work around us and in us to proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ. I love you, North Shore. Let's praise him together.